Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Luron Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Linda Carroll. Linda is the author of the new book called Love Skills, The Keys to Unlocking Lasting Wholehearted Love from New World Library. Described as a couple's workshop in a book, Linda helps her readers navigate the challenges of intimate relationships. Her first book called Love Cycles describes in detail the five stages of intimate relationships and illuminates the behaviors associated with each stage. Here in this companion workbook, Linda gives us a practical guide for experiencing resilient relationships through exercises, activities, self-assessments, and other tools to gain insight into where we are in our relationship. Linda addresses challenges such as loss of sexual energy, why what once seemed endearing is now annoying, and the many ways family history and personality type can wreak havoc on relationships. Such a pleasure to present to Get Up Nation, Linda Carroll. Linda, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I really enjoy reading your book. As I told you before, I think I highlighted something on almost every page. I'm such a fan of what you're doing here to help us better understand intimate relationships. You know, it's, it's concerning the amount of information out there that promotes unhealthy relationships. So to have you here is a real honor today. Well, thank you. Can we start with a section of the preface of your book? It reads, one day I said to my therapist, I realized there is no such thing as the one. And your therapist replied, oh, but there is. The one you're looking for is inside of you, not outside. Will you share the significance of this with us? Yeah, I sure will. I think that was one of the, and one what I talk about in the book was how I had a, a nun when I was in the eighth grade tell me that when I wrote a paper on romantic love and I laughed at her. I thought, what does a nun know about love? The one is out there because the culture and the the films, the songs, the poetry all, all of the things that I gravitated to as a young girl to help me understand life and love all pointed to the idea that there was a someone out there 
who was going to fulfill me and make me whole. And I believed it. And I kept looking for the one, trying to find some someone outside of myself that was going to make me into the whole person that I was seeking. And I had a lot of disastrous relationships and experiences in doing that. And when I was, that was when I, the nun, the nun said it when I was 12. The therapist said it when I was 35. And at 35, I got it. I heard it. I just said, I remember saying to her, I don't know how to find that one in me because I had been looking outside of myself for so long. I knew what she meant, but I didn't have a clue where to begin to find that. Wow. And then that sparked this journey that has led to all your expertise and how you're so positively impacting the world today with what you've learned. And for those who aren't familiar with the book you wrote called Love Cycles, will you share briefly about some of these predictable stages in relationships? Yeah. And the stages really don't just come from me. They come from, as I say, over and over, I stand, my work stands on the shoulders of so many great people in not just psychotherapy, but biology. When you look at seasons, that life goes through cycles. When you look at waves on the ocean, there's so, I think there's seven cycles to a wave. There's cycles to love. And the cycles to love, I think that they're pretty universal, even though we have different ideas about love in different cultures. In our culture, we usually start with the first cycle, which is the merge. We fall in love. Are you the one? We look at somebody and we get this download of the thunderbolt is in the, in the movie, The Godfather. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but there was this scene where Michael Corleone looks at a woman in Sicily. He's in Sicily hiding out from the bad guys. And he looks over at a woman walking down the hill and something happens to him. And his friend who's with him said, oh, you got the thunderbolt. And that merge is like the thunderbolt. It hits us. And, it, and what we know now is that it is downloaded with these chemicals, love's cocktail, I, I call it. The goddess of love, Aphrodite, had a son named Cupid, as I'm sure many of your listeners remember. And Aphrodite would say to Cupid, okay, get that person over there. And Cupid would dip his arrow into a potion, aim it at the unsuspecting person and sling that arrow. And the person who got hit with the arrow would fall in love with the person next to them. And that story is so old. And that experience of getting hit with the arrow, the magic potion, most of us know what that's like. We just get whacked. We look at somebody and we think that the feeling and and the strength of the feeling, that that feeling represents that that's a person we should be with, that person who is, quote, the one. And that download of chemicals can make a mess in our life. And I'm not saying it's bad, the merge. It's wonderful and it's delightful and enjoy it, but it's not an experience to make a life decision from. So first is the merge, falling in love and all that goes with it and our, the changes in our body and our psyche. And that experience has diminishing returns. The first time we fall in love, it lasts about three years. And each time we fall in love afterwards, it has less and less of a life. So I see people sometimes when they're 40s that say, oh, I fall in love and three months later, I don't feel the feelings. What's wrong? And what's wrong is they never get to stage two because they're trying to stay in stage one. So they have to keep changing partners all the time. So by the time they get to 80, what is it? Like, you know, two minutes and then they're on to the next one. The second stage is the power struggle. And that and that happens inevitably because what we fall in love with somebody, I did a reading last night and this woman asked at a, at a local bookstore and a woman said, why can't we fall in love with someone who's just like us? Then we wouldn't ever have these troubles. 
we could answer that question many ways. But I think that what is true is we fall in love with someone because they're different than us. And then we start to get annoyed with the ways that they're different. And then we start to argue over the ways that they're different. And that's the second stage. That's the power struggle. And that goes on for a long time. And in the power struggle, we get stuck in patterns, which I call loops, which are reoccurring cycles that every couple has. We go round and round the same troubles. You know, he, she wants connection. And the more she wants connection, the more he withdraws. And the more he withdraws, the more she wants connection. And those loops play out in all different ways. And they become, they, for, some, for some of us, they start to feel like the relationship is where we're just stuck in a pattern of shutdown or feeling isolated or disconnected. The power struggle happens over all kinds of things. But what I have found in my own relationship of 35 years, and also as a person who is a love and life coach for 38 years, is that most of the issues that couples come in to see me about are really not the issues at all. They think it's about they're arguing over this, or they've hurt each other's feelings over that, or communication has shut down because of not being able to agree on whether they should get a dog or how to do housework. But the real issue in the power struggle is that they lose connection with each other. There is this sad feeling, where have you gone? We had this merge, it felt so delicious, and now we're fighting about whether to get a dog or not. But underneath that is the sense of losing the person who was so close to me. And we're locked in these patterns. That goes on and it's so painful. And eventually we move to the third stage where it's the opposite of the first stage. So if you think of the first stage as enchantment, the merge is filled with enchantment. The third stage, and it's in our fairy tales, isn't it? There's a spell in stage one that's cast over us where everything the person does is wonderful. Stage three, which is disenchantment or disillusionment, as I call it, that another spell is cast over us. And everything the person does is wrong, is imperfect. Even the shoes they wear when they walk in a room or the way they say hello starts to be evidence. Stage one, those shoes, how they said hello, that's evidence. This is the one. Isn't it perfect how they said hello? But when we're in that third stage, we start looking for evidence to support our idea we're with the wrong person. And so we shut down. We don't do the skills that enhance relationships. Instead, what we're doing is protecting ourselves. And after a period of time, and there's some hard moves in that third stage, we start to think that's the relationship. And stage one, we often miss the red flags. Well, in stage three, we often miss the things that really point to this relationship being good and being and the other person being a good partner. We miss those cues and we only see what they're doing wrong. And eventually we go to stage four because stage three is so painful. And stage four is what am I going to do about it? I have to make a decision. This is so painful. I'm living on shutdown. I don't think I'm in love with the per- with my partner anymore. Everything I say is wrong or everything she or he says is wrong. And at that point, we make a decision. We either leave, we go into parallel living. And, and what that looks like is we are kind of dutiful. We do what we need to to get through the day but we really close our heart off and we just live as roommates and accept that. Or we get some help and we say, hey, what are we going to do? We had this great thing going and now all we can do is either not talk or argue what's going on here. And that's where I really encourage people to do the work in that stage because 
whatever it is that's unfinished, if we leave a relationship without doing it, we just bring the trouble with us into the next relationship. And if for many people, when they do the work in that stage, they actually find out that they're stuck in a power struggle and it felt like the whole relationship. But when they get out of that power struggle, and I know how to help people do that most of the time, when they get out of the power struggle, suddenly they look over and there's their friend again. Suddenly they see each other and all the good stuff comes back. And the final stage, and if they do decide to leave, and I do, I'm not like a lot of people who write books on relationships who say every relationship can be saved, because I don't think that's true. I think that that part of what happens in the first stage is that some of us select relationships from a very unwise part of ourself, and we may do that over and over again. So if that's true, and if we didn't select the person who had the ability to go the distance for whatever reason, usually that's our history, we have to learn how to select an appropriate partner. For other people, whatever, for whatever reason, it doesn't work. And I have a part in the book about how to leave a relationship keeping yourself wholeheartedly. How, and it's a big it's a big call, but we can do it. And if we work it out, we find that we have the skills to manage the power struggles and all the good stuff is still there. And that last stage I call wholehearted. And that's really what, if we go back to the nun who knew nothing about love, she actually did, that the one is in us. And to, to really have a health, healthy relationship, we need to know that we're whole ourselves, that the other person isn't going to make us whole. And so that's what I call wholehearted. From my wholeness in me, that's where I can really love another person. But it has to start with me being self-partnered enough to know that my wholeness is what I carry, that you don't give it to me and you don't take it away. So that's a lot. I really wanted to hone in here in that transition that you discussed from the merge into the stage two, the, the power struggles. You write in the book that our feeling of love becomes more conditional. Power struggles begin to arise. Time away from our partner feels restorative. You write, as romance recedes, though, we can learn to steer through difficulty in ways that deepen the relationship rather than damaging it. If you could go into a little bit of some of the ways where we can get through that transition, some of the key insights that into that transition from stage one to stage two. Okay, so the first thing is to know it's normal, to read everything you can and to read it together, to have it be a part of the dialogue when you're with the person in stage one, to be able to talk about, this is so great. It feels so wonderful. Everything you do seems perfect, but this is going to pass. Let's find out about it so that when it passes, we know what's going on. It's sort of like having a baby, but knowing they're going to go into the terrible twos, which is exactly what's happening in the relationship, by the way. First, there's the merge, which is that first part of having a child where there's just this delicious sort of, you're, you're me and I'm you, and we gaze at each other all the time, or a puppy. Although I don't know that a puppy, I think it might, at least with me, my dog stays in stage one always, even when they eat things. But, but I don't think that's always true about kids. Then, then what happens is I come to the place where I know you're not me. I remember one time with my husband, we had a long merge because he lived in New Zealand and I lived here and we saw each other once a year for four years. And so that keeps it going longer than three years. That's, that's a big secret, live in a different country. But I remember when he finally moved here and we, he'd been here about a year and a half and we were with some friends and he said something like, it was so innocent. He said, well, we think, or we feel, 
And I went crazy later and I said, it's not we, it's me. It's me and it's you. It's not we. There's, and that's part of stage two. That was fully in stage two. I didn't know it then, which is I'm not you and you're not me. And to understand that there are two main parts of connection, of relationship. One is we have to be able to stand strongly in ourself as an individual. And the other is we have to be able to stand in connection. And we move between those twos, those two polarities. In a relationship, one person usually holds the flag for connection. They want to merge, they want to talk, they want to make love, they want to be together. And often the other person holds the flag for individuation, which means I want my own space, I want my own time, I want my own friends. And at first, it feels like a balance. And after we go into the second stage, those two polarities start to get extreme. The more person one wants connection, the more person two wants to move away. And then person one feels abandoned and goes after them, and that goes into the power struggle. So knowing, having the information that says, wait a minute, we're in stage two. This is the power struggle. And knowing and having the skills, because what my book is saying most of all, Ben, is that love is a feeling and a a wholehearted relationship is based on having the skills to navigate these stages. And most of us didn't learn the skills growing up. So here are the skills we need to learn. And the first one is information, knowing this is normal, knowing that the chemicals are leaving my body. And I'm starting to notice that even though I think you're the most interesting person I've ever met, you still are telling the same story over and over. And I wish you wouldn't or whatever it is, you know, whatever people complain about, to know that this is normal. It doesn't mean the relationship isn't good. It doesn't mean that our love has died for each other. It means we're in stage two. Hmm. And that takes me to my next question. You describe how most couples don't lack love, but they lack the skills to communicate compassionately while hurt, upset, or holding a different perspective. Will you share a little bit about the ways we manage our differences and how it causes pain? I sure will. Let's say that there is a difference in talking, you know, we what we know from research is that most couples have about 10 issues that never get resolved. Ever, no matter how good their relationship is, those issues will never change. And the difference between couples who thrive and couples who dive is how they manage the conflict. So let's talk about that. Let's say there's an issue, a typical issue is about money. And one person and somebody gets a bonus they get $3,000. And one person says, let's go to Hawaii. And the other person says, let's put this into the bank. And they have very different ideas about money. And they start to argue about it. So the way that that usually goes is that each person, they're, they're saying, let's sit down and talk about it. But what they're really doing is they're trying to convince the other person to do it their way. So they sit down to talk about what to do with the $3,000, but underneath that conversation, they each have an agenda. I'm going to convince you that I'm right. And the other person is saying, I'm going to convince you that I'm right. This is not going to go well because you are trying to convince your partner you're right. The, The more they tell their side, the more juice you get to say yes, but. And so you have two people who are pretending to have a conversation that's reasonable, but they each are there with a 100% agenda. So what do we do about that? Well, what I suggest is that we that the first conversation we have about whether we use the $3,000 for Hawaii or the bank 
or whether we get a dog or whether we move you know, to Wisconsin, that that first conversation has nothing to do with a decision. In fact, I say, don't make a decision. No decision. Throw out the word. The first conversation is about you listening to my side of where I'm coming from and to understand it, no decision, and then me listening to your side and where you're coming from. And then we leave. We say, okay, I really get where you're coming from. And I remember that my husband and I had a really awful, awful argument one time. And that conversation, and it was about getting a dog. And we'd always had dogs. And we had three dogs, three little Jack Russells that were 15. And he said, you know, when these dogs die, I don't want to get another dog. And I went crazy. I mean, it was, I didn't do anything that was right in the book. And he, and and we couldn't talk about it. We were so upset because I couldn't imagine living without a dog. And we didn't talk about it for three days. But at the end of that time, because we do know some, we have some skills, we decided we would just listen to each other. Why don't you want a dog? And every time he talked about why he didn't, I felt threatened and I wanted to stop him, but I didn't. And what I found out was, just blew me away, was that he'd been a vet for almost 50 years. And every dog that he had had, that he had loved through his whole life, he had ended up putting down or being there when the dog died and it broke his heart and he didn't think he could go through it again. It never occurred to me that was the reason. And when he said that, I felt so much empathy for him because all I could think of is you're trying to keep me from having a dog. Then he asked me to explain my side, which I did. And we didn't make a decision about what to do, but we had so much empathy for each other. And rather than seeing each other as the person stopping us from what we wanted, what we ended up doing was really feeling connected. We said, let's not talk about this for six months. And actually at the end of six months, I said, you know, after the dogs died, we just let it go. And one day he said, you know, I really think I want a dog. And I said, I don't. (laughs) Then we had to start again. But eventually we got Jackson and now we're off on a new life with him. But that's what we do is we go into trying to convince the person rather than listening. And in trying to convince them, we wipe them out emotionally. We wipe them out and we don't listen to them and they don't listen to us. We feel disrespected, unloved. And then we go off into another direction where we're starting out talking about a dog or the $3,000. But what ends up in that conversation is shutdown, emotional disconnection and shutdown, sometimes anger. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just thinking about this and you have a differentiation in the book about the concept of love and the concept of loving. It's a skilled way, like you're talking about having these skills of when you're dealing with these challenges. And it's nice to remove that decision from there. So you just kind of grow and let it go and it marinates and the solution comes. And it's just, it's an epic way for us to look at the challenges that we have in our relationships. And to where so often we feel helpless or hopeless, this is a way to really reinvigorate that connection, to really look at that relationship through new eyes and to have skills and talents that we can use skills and tools that we can use to really navigate all these challenges. Will you share a little bit about the difference between love and loving? Love is a feeling, you know, love is a feeling and it's, and it doesn't take intelligence. It doesn't take life experience. It doesn't take wisdom. I had it at 11. Love is a feeling that comes, it's in our body and it's in our chemicals. Loving is a skill set. Most people fall in love and, and it doesn't take skill, but loving is something else. Loving does take skill. 
It takes self-awareness and self-discipline. It takes skill to practice loving behavior. You know, most of us know about that wonderful work of Gary Chapman about love languages. It takes skill to know if I'm married to an introvert, giving them a surprise party is not going to be a good thing. If I'm married to someone who, or if my partner is someone who loves touch, and I don't care about touch, the skill is understanding that what's true for you isn't true for me. and that where do I extend myself to do the things that feel caring to you? The skill is practicing those behaviors even when we don't feel like it. And most of the time, we depend on the feeling. But one of the things I say to couples is, what did you do in the beginning? Well, we left notes for each other. We did things, you know, I was really nice to her mother. I invited her friend to lunch. She loves biking. I don't like biking, but I'd go. And those things we did in the beginning start to bring those those behaviors back. And the feelings come after the behaviors. In the beginning, the feeling comes first and the behavior comes naturally as a result of the feeling. But when we when we move out of stage one, sometimes we have to do the behavior first to get the feeling back. Hmm. I love that. You touched on this a little bit before and it's something that I, I really liked reading. Recently, I interviewed Jenny Lee and we discussed her love of surfing and how it relates to mindfulness. And you also mentioned waves in your book. You you say the wave is not the ocean. Will you go into how the times that feel the most perfect or the most intolerable will pass and how an awareness of this can help us succeed in experiencing resilient relationships? Sometimes when everything is wonderful and we just have this fabulous connection, it's really important to know that's a great thing and to enjoy it. And the next day, we could fall out of that place easily, and it doesn't mean something's wrong. It just means we're in life. In the same way that we have moods, you know, we have feelings about our life. And I love that expression, one day a peacock feather, the next day a feather duster. And that's kind of how life works. One day we're on top of it, and the next day it just all feels impossible. And relationships are like that. And it's so important to know that when we have a wonderful night out and everything's the connection seems perfect, the next day we may get into a really stupid argument about what kind of salad to have for dinner. And that's okay. It doesn't mean something's wrong. In the same way that when we're in the middle of that argument about whether to have a spinach salad or a kale salad, and, and it starts to feel personal and we start to really feel upset about it, it doesn't mean that we're not going to move into another space the next night when we're connected. And that's why I think relationships are our practices in mindfulness, because it's allowing what there is there to be there and to not get too hung up on this is the way it's always going to be. So that when it's good, we hold it with an open hand and say, what a wonderful night. And when it feels painful, we hold that with an open hand and say, this isn't who we are. We just got stuck. So that's what it means. The wave is not the ocean. I love it. As you know, at Get Up Nation, we focus heavily on how people can develop and sustain resilience. What I love about your book is how you help us experience this resilience in our intimate relationships. You write, when you know how to navigate the storms, conflict can lead to understanding and even closeness that makes your relationship even better than it was before. For people who are experiencing those challenges in their relationships and feel like it's over or feel like they can't go on anymore or feeling like it's just too much it's exciting and profound to gain the skills to take those painful things and to make our, the relationship even better than it was before. There's such hope in that. There's such uh, empowerment in that. Will you share a little bit about 
the joy of doing this for couples, the joy of experiencing this in your own relationship. Sure. The example I gave about the dog is a great example. I was feeling like, you know, he can't stop me from having a dog. And what I wasn't understanding is that it wasn't that he was trying to control me, that he was trying to manage his own feelings about falling in love with an animal and going through their life with them and then watching them die and the pain of that. And it had never occurred to me what that would be like as a vet. When I was able to really hear him talk about the dog's that he had loved in his life and at the pain for him in putting an animal down or what it was like at the end, all I felt was compassion. And when we really learn how to navigate, when we learn how to listen to our partner, even if they have a different point of view, what we end up with is empathy for them. We don't end up with this sort of child way of saying, you're keeping me from what I want, but we see them as a different person with their own story. And it may not be what we want. They're Feelings about something may be in direct contrast to ours, but the, the empathy we feel for our partner and the incredible gratitude we feel when we feel listened to by our partner, what that does, it creates another pathway towards one another. Even if the issue isn't resolved, the connection can be brought back. And that's what we're really together for, is that feeling, that connection, and what and what that brings to us in the, in the sense of well-being and feeling like someone else really sees us and knows us and cares about us. And that is not about agreement. That's really about learning how to listen, how to give presence to each other. And that comes out of some of our worst conflicts is that skill. My audience is largely people who have faced significant adversity and are committed to thriving and being resilient of getting up, even though they've been through adversity. If people listening to this have experienced relationship problems unhealthy relationships, what word of encouragement do you have for them? What can you say to people who are trying to take their relationships that are challenging for them and turn them into something that's enjoyable and healthy? Do you have a word of encouragement for them today? I do. I do. Because all of this work starts with self-work. It all starts within yourself. I think the serenity prayer is the best. It's the best phrase that we have as human beings and that we really can't change anybody but ourselves. That our work is really starts within us. And even if you're in a relationship that's painful or that isn't going to go the distance, you can do the work inside yourself that makes you whole. And some of, some of my greatest work in me, some of the ways I've become the most aware and compassionate with myself have come from some of the most painful relationships. That if you're in a painful relationship, I don't mean sometimes, but I mean most of the time, if you're stuck in one, by being able to work with yourself rather than trying to change the other person, that you can use that relationship as a way to develop yourself into strengths and into wholeness that you never thought was possible. It's true. I mean, look at Nelson Mandela, who used his solitary confinement in prison as a way to become one of the most resilient people we know. And relationships can give us resilience when we stop waiting for the other person to change. I love that. Linda, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Are you willing to run through these six quick questions with me? Sure. All right. As you look back over all of your work and all the things that you've accomplished and experienced, who are you thankful for today? Oh, gosh, boy, what a question. I guess I would say I'm thankful for the first boy I loved who, and it was a torturous relationship for a long time, 
when I was 11 years old. I'm thankful because he's who led me down the path into trying to understand what this crazy cocktail of emotion and feeling was. And so I would have to give gratitude to him. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? I'm thankful that I've lived a long time. I'm 75 and I have friends that died young and they never got to find these things out. They never got to go through their life and make sense of the things that once were the hardest that brought them the greatest wisdom or well-being. I'm grateful for the longevity of my life. How do you fuel the fire within you? I surround myself with things that feed me. You know, I've got a really good relationship. I've got great friends. I take time to do the things that that fill me. I walk, I listen to music, I have a, a dog. I know how to feed myself and I do that. What is one thing adversity has taught you to value? My own resilience. Without adversity, I wouldn't know that I was resilient. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? I'm talking on a radio program about love. <laughs> and about this torturous relationship I had at 11 as being the great teacher of my life. And what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? I'm going to get on an airplane and I'm going to go to Rancho La Puerta where I work 10 weeks a year in Mexico. And I'm going to give talks on this all week long and walk 15,000 steps a day. So that's something I never thought I could either because I used to spend a lot of my life holed up in a, in a room reading. I've become a walker. Amazing. How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? They can go to lindaacarroll.com, which is my website. Everything is on there. I have an Instagram page, Linda Carroll Official. And you can also get my book, Love Skills, anywhere you get books. Love Skills by Linda Carroll. Excellent. Linda, thank you so much.